Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. to our Ebenezer family and others who are joining us for our online service this morning. My name is Cal and I am thrilled that you have chosen and you've taken the time to tune in today. Now today we're going to conclude our summer long series, A Long Walk with Jesus, where each week we've taken a look at either an interaction or a teaching of Jesus. And this morning I'm privileged to be joined by Michael Horner, one of our supported missionaries. Michael, it's good to see you. I know we've communicated several times over the last several months. Uh, before we get into today's message, uh, why don't you take just a few minutes to share about yourself, maybe a little bit about your family, and uh, certainly speak about your ministry. Sure. Uh, well, it's my pleasure to be invited to uh, to do this today. I'm, uh, I was very pleased to receive the invitation. Uh, some uh, older people in Ebenezer might remember me from the mid-70s, my first two years on staff with what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ. We're at the University of Saskatchewan and I settled down at uh, Ebenezer Baptist and got baptized there as a matter of fact. Uh, and actually uh, John, Pastor John Fast at the time, uh, I asked him to teach me how to study the scriptures and, and he did and uh, joined with uh, Ken Merritt in helping uh, lead Bible studies to college and career age group people and it's a uh, uh, great memories from those two years in Saskatoon at Ebenezer. Uh, I'm married to Phyllis. Uh, we have been uh, married uh, 43 years, and we have three children, uh, Sean, Stephanie, and Danny, and seven grandchildren. Uh, Sean is actually an associate pastor at Brookswood Baptist Church in Langley, which is of the same denomination as uh, Ebenezer, and all three of our kids are we're uh, walking with the Lord, and uh, and of course we love our grandchildren like all grandparents do. Uh, my ministry, uh, after the first eight years on staff, uh, morphed into a full-time apologetics ministry as a traveling apologist, uh, defending the faith on Canadian campuses and American campuses and and beyond. Uh, in more recent years, it's morphed into kind of a dual ministry where half the time I'm doing apologetics, although much less um, actual presence on the university campus and more, much more by way of the internet. So it's, I'm actually working for digital strategies uh, portion of uh, Power to Change, which is the new name for Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, but the second half of my ministry in the last um, actually eight years has been uh, having to do with basketball. So I've been coaching basketball both at Trinity Western University and Columbia Bible College and functioning as the chaplain as well as an assistant coach. Um, I loved it and I saw a lot of uh, young basketball players uh, come to know the Lord because it's not only Christians that attend those two schools. Uh, unfortunately, two weeks ago, I was told that uh, Columbia Bible College no longer needs my services. I guess they're going with a younger a younger group. So um, now I'm back to doing apologetics uh, full, full time. Uh, but I love doing that. And so uh, that's the current, uh, current state of my situation. Uh, but like I said, I'm glad to be with you today. Yeah, it, it's great to have you. And uh, I know that especially with uh, what's been happening with COVID and everything else, I mean, that digital platform must be opening up some tremendous new opportunities uh, for you and the ministry that you're doing, right? Yeah, we can reach more people online than we can by traveling to a campus, booking a room and trying to advertise and get people out. You can reach more people uh, digitally these days. Right. Yeah. And that's what we're finding here as well, too, as we've uh, had to move our stuff online and we're going to continue to have an online presence. Um, now, the passage we chose for today is what is referred to as the parable of the shrewd manager found in uh, Luke chapter 16. Now, commentators have suggested that this is one of the, if not the most difficult parable to interpret 
uh, to understand and to apply. And for reasons we're going to talk about in just a moment. But as you and I have chatted, um, we've actually discovered there's some really key important truths and principles and then applications that, that we both felt uh, needed to be shared. Uh, so before we uh, you know, get, get into it, let me just read the parable for us. And, uh, and then uh, we'll spend some time to kind of walk our way through it and draw out some of the, uh, the convictions that we've had actually as we prepared. So let me read from Luke chapter 16, reading verses 1 to 14, the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I'll know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told them, take your bill and make it 800. Now the master commanded the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now, most of our listeners or many of our listeners may be familiar kind of with that last line. You cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting that it comes out of this parable. And now we mentioned this parable is considered by many very difficult to interpret. Uh, what are some of the reasons why this, uh, this parable uh, can, can, be, can be tough to understand? Yeah, there are. It, it is a tough one. Thanks for choosing it, by the way. You're very and, welcome. Uh, <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a number of diff different points. I mean, really, it centers around the dishonesty of the manager. Was he actually dishonest or was he just incompetent? Uh, where, when exactly did the dishonesty take place? Was it at, you know, before the parable started or was it later when he acted? Um, and there's a number of little rabbit trails we can, we can take. And, uh, I think I've decided that rather than going down all those rabbit trails, uh, I'm going to try to make a case for interpreting the passage in a particular way that I think makes, uh, the most sense. But any of us that, that read this should immediately kind of wonder, wait a minute, what is going on here? This is a strange parable. Yeah. Now there, you mentioned several reasons that make this parable challenging, but, I think as we talk, the, the two that we kind of want to highlight, and I think that you're going to try to help us understand uh, as it applies to the key points that you want to bring out is, first, the reasoning uh, for the discounts that the manager gave those who owed the master. So we, we just read about that. And so what was the rationale behind some of that? We're going to get into that a little bit. And then second, which is probably the most glaring challenge in this, is the master's praising and actually commendation of what the master calls very shrewd moves. See, it almost seems as though Jesus is praising dishonesty. He's praising manipulation, doesn't it? It's very odd that Jesus would actually uh, bring this out as a, as a positive thing. You're right. That, that's what strikes most people, and we're, are gonna, we're gonna deal with that directly. Yeah. So first, let me give us a bit of background here, what the, uh, the, uh, who, who the audience is for this parable. Um, Jesus is actually speaking to the disciples in this parable, which is a change. Previously, the previous parables, he was speaking to the Pharisees. However, we're told in verse 14 that the Pharisees heard all of this parable too. 
but it was addressed to the disciples. And in the, the context, both before and after Luke 16, it's a combination of parables and sayings that are pointing over and over again to the need for decisions, for decisive decisions to be made in a person's life, as well as uh, Jesus talking about the prudent use of material wealth. And he ties both of those together in this uh, parable. So let's start with kind of a summary here. The parable involves three characters, the rich master, the manager, and the master's debtors. And it revolves around the manager who's been caught squandering his very rich master's possessions and is to be fired for mismanagement. It's not entirely clear what squandering means, whether it actually is dishonesty or whether he's just you know, inept or not very competent. Uh, but he's worried about what he's going to do in the future now. And the manager calls all the master's debtors and reduces the amount that they owe in order to win them as friends who could then help him out after he loses his job. Right. So the parable ends with the master actually praising the manager for acting shrewdly. Then Jesus tells his disciples that they too should be shrewd and learn how to use money to make friends so that friends will welcome them into eternity. He then states a principle that the level of faithfulness that a person displays in small things will be the same level of faithfulness or lack thereof um, they display in the larger things. And he applies the principle to the theme of money and concludes that if someone cannot be faithful with money, uh, no one would entrust him with true riches. He then states another principle. A person can't serve two masters because he's going to love one and hate the other. And he applies the principle to God and money and concludes that you cannot serve both at the same time. Okay, I think we're done now, Cal. That, that yeah. pretty much ends the sermon, right? Yeah, I think so. No. <laughs> That's just a summary, folks, and we're going to delve into it a little bit deeper now. So succinctly, the point of the parable seems to be serve God, not money. Instead, faithfully and wisely use money as a tool to win friends for eternity, for there are eternal rewards and consequences for how one stewards money. So in verses one and two, we see the unrighteous manager is being fired for squandering the master's money. In verses three through seven, we see the unrighteous manager reduces the debts to make himself some friends. In verse 8a, the master commends the unrighteous manager for acting shrewdly. And then we kind of switch to applications of the parable. In verse 16, um, chapter 16, verse 8b, uh, Jesus is teaching if unbelievers are shrewd in planning for an earthly future, especially as it relates to people, believers should be shrewd in planning for the heavenly future especially as it relates to people. Right. And verse nine is kind of the key verse here that everything centers around. Jesus is teaching us to be shrewd and use money, which is temporary. That's a key point. Money is temporary, but use it as a tool to make friends for eternity. He adds a couple more principles at the end. And, and some commentators think that this wasn't originally part of the parable, but Luke is putting it, uh, at the end here to kind of, uh, because he, he sees a continuation in the theme. And these two principles are be a faithful steward of money to gain true rituals, riches and serve God and use money. Don't serve money and use God. Mm. So again, the I key, think that, so go no, ahead. I was just going to say that again, when we read this, people get hung up on the master's praising of these moves by the manager. So, so again, so what, what, what is the key then to understanding this parable? Yeah. You're exactly right. The key to understanding this parable is to figure out exactly what the master right. praised the unrighteous manager for and in what way Jesus wants his disciples to be like the manager. Right. And so that's, that's what we're going to focus on right now. So when I first read this parable, my, my response was, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> what, is Jesus, what is Jesus saying here? This guy is dishonest, and Jesus is saying we should copy him. I mean, copy this right. is so strange initially that he seems to that the master seems to be commending dishonesty. However, we need to consider the possibility that maybe he's not commending dishonesty. Maybe he's just saying, 
you shrewd rascal, you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you wascally wabbit, as yeah. Elmer Fudd used to say. Jesus seems to agree with the commendation, though, that the master gives them. So it makes it trickier since Jesus is agreeing with it. So we're left with the question, why was the dishonest manager commended? On the surface, the answer looks like, well, because he acted shrewdly. But was his shrewd act not also dishonest? dishonest right. So I think there is a solution to this. And it's an interpretation of the passage that I'm going to call the commission view. The reason the manager was now commended after the um, man, uh, the manager had reduced the, the debts uh, is even though he had maybe previously acted dishonestly, it may be that he at least now learned that one's worldly wealth can be wisely given away to do good. Given that the amount of um, of the debt taken off of the bills in verses five through seven was actually not part of the debt owed to the master, okay. but maybe represented the interest or the commission that the manager himself was charging and receiving. So he was just taking off what he was going to get. And it, that may be uh, part of the explanation for why the bills were written up in terms of commodities rather than mm -hmm. cash. Like it's written up in terms of gallons of olive oil or bushels of wheat rather than this many dollars or this many um, uh, denarii. Right. Areas. Okay. Yeah. Because so, that way you could hide the amount of interest a little bit more easily. Right. Okay. So that is possibly what's going on here. The manager does not need to reveal that the reduction represents his commission. He doesn't need right. to tell the debtors that. Okay. Uh, the debtors just may not ever, ever know that is the case. And he appears to portray his reductions as kind of a, of a kindness. So there is some right. deception going on here. For the debtors, the reductions must create a favorable impression of both him and the master. Just as today's businesses, you know, they earn our loyalty by offering us good deals. Okay. But here's the complaint that, that some commentators uh, provide. The, we're reading this commission view into the text. It's not actually there in, in the text. Right. However, research on first century commissions shows that cultural background can often be assumed in uh, many parts of the scripture without being stated explicitly. Right. Such a reading of an implicit cultural background is actually quite common. For example, today I, I could tell the story of uh, purchasing a house without mentioning the relationships between my bank and the mortgage company, uh, the various insurance companies involved in the whole thing. And so similarly, often such cultural details are just assumed in scripture as we assume them today in our uh, conversations, uh, even though they're not actually stated for the audience. And so that, this makes sense to me that this is uh, what everyone would have understood was going on that this was the commission that the manager uh, was keeping for himself, and now he was getting rid of it. The, the, manor, the master is going to lose no money if the amount right. forfeited was simply the interest right. that the manager would have gained. And such a forgiveness of the debts would hardly have hurt the master's reputation. It probably would have helped the master's reputation. And so the manager's actions actually increases the master's cash flow by getting the money in and so his master just commends this shrewdness not his integrity he commends the shrewdness okay so the actions of the manager were not actually dishonest in the sense of uh, robbing from the master or taking away profits that rightly belong to the master rather he was likely sacrificing his own commission or his own payment or interest in order to make these deal with the debtors. And as you mentioned, it makes him look good in the eyes of the debtors, but it, it also in turn makes the master look good in the eyes of those who owe him money. So that's again, the shrewdness versus the dishonesty then. It was very shrewd, right. And the argument is not that the manager acted honestly. I'm not arguing that the manager was acting honestly, but just that he was acting shrewdly. 
And to forgo his commission was shrewd because it sacrificed his short-term gain right. for a long-term benefit. Now, there is a counter that I have to deal with uh, because some people say, well, wait a minute, uh, wouldn't the money in, in the hand, you know, been better than the, the long-term friendships? Right. And so whether the benefit of making the friends actually outweighed the amount of the commission that he could have gotten in his hand, maybe, is a good question. In response, however, money will always run out. And Jesus right. is emphasizing this in the parable. At right. the end of one's life, your money runs out. Uh, and it doesn't do you any, any good. I'm dealing with my mother's estate now. She passed away in, in June. And all the money she had does her no good anymore. Right. Yeah. And Jesus emphasizes this when he says, when it's gone. Right. When the wealth is gone. gone. Yeah. So the shrewdness is in the sweet twist in this deal. And the master admires the manager's shrewdness. shrewdness. The manager knew his job and reputation were gone because of his previous mishandling of the funds in, in some way, whether it was dishonest or just uh, ineptness. Uh, he needed friends. And by foregoing the customary interest or commission, he won friends among the creditors. Right. So the key to the parable is to see the master praises the unrighteous manager not for being righteous in the end, uh, but because he had acted shrewdly. shrewdly. And the manager acted shrewdly by devising a plan to secure his future that involved wisely using money to make friends that would welcome him into their homes. Into their homes. And whether the commission interpretation is correct or not, the fact that the manager acted shrewdly is what Jesus picks up on. Right. Yeah, Jesus is now encouraging the use of the prudent use of material wealth in verse 8b he makes an analogical argument an argument from an analogy and it's an argument from the lesser to the greater he says just like people of the world are shrewd with their use of money and making friends how much more people of the light should be shrewd in their use of money to make eternal friends he uses the story to show that the people of the light could also accomplish much by wisely giving up or redirecting some of their worldly wealth, especially into other people. So Christians, as far as Jesus is concerned, should deal at least as shrewdly in God-honoring ways as ungodly people deal selfishly for their own ends. People of the light should heed the manager's example and should use their wealth as he did or not as he did, excuse me, uh, to cheat, but in such a way as that they will be received into the eternal kingdom by the people they've served. So combining uh, verse 9 with verse 8, we see what Jesus meant. If the sons of this age, that is those who do not know God, shrewdly know how to use money to build relationships for an earthly future, how much more should the sons of light, those who do know God and are committed to his standards, know how to use money to build relationships for an eternal future. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's really great. And that helped us understand the, the potential confusion that comes when we read, just strictly read the words that are on the page. And it creates this kind of dissonance in our minds of, of what Jesus is actually praising. So, uh, so Michael, you, you have kind of two key principles you want to focus on and draw our attention uh, to today. So what's the first uh, kind of major principle? Yeah, I think that there, there are two principles. Uh, the first one being take seriously the end of life. And the second one will be take seriously who is your master. So let's deal with the first one. Take seriously the end of life. There's a repetition of an idea here in verse 4 and verse 9. Verse 4 says, when I lose my job here. And verse 9 says, when it is gone, it referring to money. So there's going to be a cessation the end of the regular scheme of things and jesus is emphasizing the need for prudent preparation for the inevitable end when it comes he commands shrewdness of action in times of crisis it's an exhortation to act decisively when it's crunch time just as the manager acted in his personal crisis yeah, I wonder if this current COVID crisis and all the economic chaos it's created has forced people to think more deeply about what's going to happen, even, again, in a worldly sense, about retirement 
and how are they going to prepare for that time when the income changes? I mean, I know it, it seems that this is a generalization and maybe a, a stereotype is not fair to completely say, but just from my own experience, I know that it seems to be the younger you are, the less likely you are to take seriously the fact that eventually your life is, is going to end. Uh, now, I remember having to deal with the reality of death, uh, first when I was about eight years old, I believe, with the passing of my grandfather, uh, and then more um, significantly when I was 16 years old with the passing and an accident of one of my good friends uh, in high school. It, it left, a, last, left a lasting impression on me. And as we were talking, you know that my, both of my parents died within a year and a half each other, just, you know, just less than two years ago. Um, so I, I've certainly now being older and much more aware of my own mortality and the fact that things will end eventually than sometimes uh, younger people are. But, you know, this is true of everyone. Eventually, life, life is going to end. Yeah, for sure. I, I never thought about death at all until maybe the last 12 years or so when I've had to deal with uh, both with cancer mm -hmm. and a heart attack, plus a lot of other things falling apart on this so wonky frame. And both my parents, you know, passed away in the last in the last five years, but it definitely crosses my mind much more now. Right. So there's not only the need to take seriously the fact that our lives will end one day, um, but how we prepare for that end is also of vital importance. Then I remember my dad encouraging me at a very young age to start saving for retirement. I think I might have been twelve or thirteen years old, and. He showed me all the graphs and all the charts and compound interest and all of those things to show like if you just saved a dollar a day, it would grow into this amount by the time I, I was ready to retire at 65 or, or, or so years old. But in that moment, I was more interested in having things for myself now than I was in thinking about the future. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here too, right? Is to say that prepare, not only is the end inevitable, but you need to prepare yourself for that future because when it comes, it's going to be too late to do anything about it at that point. So, yeah. So let me just ask you to continue that. What, what's the, uh, what's the application for us based on this principle then? Yeah. Yeah. The application is basically pay attention to your own eternal life. Your physical life is going to come to an end. Pay attention and make some decisive decisions uh, to prepare in a prudent way for that time. Now, both my mom and dad did not do that. I was brought up in a, uh, what uh, back in the day, Catholics used to call a mixed marriage. My mother was Catholic and my father was not. In fact, he was an agnostic, but he agreed to let the children be raised as Catholics. And, and I was raised as a Catholic. Um, knew the Christian worldview, but did really not come to know the Lord until I heard Josh McDowell speak at the University of Calgary. In fact, this coming November the 5th will be the 50th anniversary of that day uh, when I gave my heart to Jesus and uh, totally surrendered to him. But um, my, my mom basically, from about that same time I made my decision, was basically living as a lapsed Catholic. She stopped going to, to church. She still viewed herself as Catholic, but she really didn't do, do much about it. And uh, she, uh, when we tried to have conversations, she was kind of still stuck in the, in the 60s and the way that Catholics and Protestants related to each other back then. It's changed dramatic, dramatically since then. Um, but there, just, there was this barrier I could really never get through. And this past April, she was uh, in uh, the nursing home where she was uh, staying, uh, which she, re she really hated. <laughs> she was depressed. Mm. But somehow there was a change in her demeanor. Mm. It might have been because of a anti-anxiety medication she was put on, or might have been just something God was doing. But all of a sudden, my mother, who was very unhappy, became very happy-go-lucky. And there was just an openness in her conversation and I just felt God prompting me to talk to her about spiritual things. And so I asked her the following question. I said, mom, um, do you think you are right with God? I wasn't even entirely sure she would understand that phrase, 
but she did immediately. She immediately understood, and this wry little smile came over her face, and she she looked down. Um, I, actually, I was speaking to her through the window. We weren't able to actually go into the long-term care home anymore at this point because of COVID. And she looked down, and with this little smile, and she went, eh, not so much. <laughs> so not so much is she right with, with God. And I said, oh, well, uh, don't you think now is a pretty good time of life to kind of get that sorted out? And she said, well, yeah, but I don't know anybody who I can talk to about it. <laughs> and I'm standing right there. It was kind of funny. And then she heard herself, what she had said, and she realized that, you know, and I said, well, mom, you know, that is kind of what I do. <laughs> and so we got into a great talk about the gospel. And I basically compared, I, first of all, I asked her this question. I said, mom, do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future? And she said, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess so. And I said, mom, Jesus' forgiveness, for, the forgiveness that he's won for us because of his death on the cross is kind of like a Christmas present. That's been put under the tree with, with your name on it and the one for, with my name on it. And, uh, you know, we could look at that present and say, oh, thank you so much for the present. Thank you. Thank you. But if we never actually grab it and rip the paper off yep. and right. receive it, we don't experience the benefits of it. And I asked her, do you think you've, have you ever done that with the forgiveness that Christ won for you on the cross? by paying the penalty for your sins? Have you ever ripped the paper off that mom and received it and uh, by faith and, uh, and uh, be full of gratitude for that? And she says, I don't know. And I said, you know what? I don't know whether you have or not either. God knows, but I don't know for sure. And even though you don't know for sure right now, you could be sure you could decide right now to do that if you wanted. And that way you would be sure, at least from today, if not earlier, but at least from today, you would know you have received Jesus' forgiveness. And so uh, she knew exactly what I was doing and she immediately bowed her head and folded her, her hands and, and I led her through a prayer of salvation. It was just thrilling because I made no headway for you know 40, almost 50 years with her. And then all of a sudden that happened. Fantastic. But right. this illustrates that we need to pay attention to our own eternal life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's really the second major principle that uh, we need to see from this parable? So the first principle is take seriously the end of life mm -hmm. and be prepared to make a decisive decision. And as important as that is in this um, parable, uh, as well as in some other passages, it actually is much smaller than the second principle yeah. that Jesus makes a much bigger deal out of. And that is the prudent use of material wealth is what predominates here. So the second principle is take seriously who your master is and spoiler alert, it's not going to be money. Right. So people of this world think about how they're going to use their resources. People spend time. Even if they misuse them, they still give it a lot of thought. How am I going to use their, their resources? They think about the long-term benefits of what they're going to acquire. Well, disciples of God should apply themselves to honor and serve God by the use of their resources. They should think about how they're going to do it. Think through their actions, both for the short term and the long term. Jesus is telling us that we should use our resources generously. As he says, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Notice, when it's gone, mm -hmm. money will run out or you'll be gone and out. it will be of no use. That's right. Money cannot come with us to heaven. Its value is limited when it comes to everlasting life. So recognize these limits and use it for others now, not selfishly. Moreover, Jesus is saying that our possessions are a responsibility. Yes. Yes. And their use, how we use them, is a test of our character, our values, and our stewardship. The one who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. 
So also the other way around, to be dishonest in little things is to be dishonest in much. Now, Jesus is also warning that money can draw your heart away from God, so much so that it can replace God as your master. And that how someone handles money is a test of whether or not God is truly their master. Those who abuse their riches are not fit managers of spiritual things. People cannot be servants of both God and money. So in summary here, this uh, parable, Jesus is giving us three lessons about money. Money should be used to make friends and win those friends for Christ. Two, money should be faithfully stewarded faithfully so as to gain eternal rewards and avoid, avoid eternal loss. And three, how someone handles money is a test of their allegiance to God because you can't serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters in the end. When push comes to shove, we will choose to serve God or mammon, to love one and hate the other. Yeah. And the implication here is we had best make the choice early. And that choice is choose God over mammon. So again, you have several application points that you want to bring out here. And again, we're, we are short on time. But I know you have several stories that you want to include, but we need to quickly kind of go through uh, some of the applications uh, that you want to draw out from this principle. Sure. So we've talked about the application of paying attention to our own end of life. And so the second application is paying attention to others' eternal life and end of life. So we're talking about evangelism here. Uh, so how do we use our money? We should be investing our money on training for ourselves and for others uh, uh, who are doing evangelism. Uh, Jesus is connecting money with how you're treating. I'm getting a, a buzzing phone call here. Sorry. No, no, I have no to shut that off. Um, so uh, evangelism, uh, who does the they refer to? in verse nine, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, one option is that it refers to the friends that the disciples are encouraged to make. If the friends are the ones to receive you into eternal dwellings, they must arguably already be in eternal dwellings. In this case, these friends will not just be friends on earth, but friends in the afterlife. And for them to be friends in the afterlife, they must have become disciples of Jesus themselves. On this view, then, Jesus is telling his disciples to use money to build relationships that will result in people being saved and becoming eternal friends. So I can't help but uh, think of people like James Huckalak and Hal, Hal Puttick. Um, James was the first person I ever uh, shared the gospel with uh, in my full-time ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of Saskatchewan. He was the first person I made an appointment with and sat down and went through the gospel with him and James came to Christ and he has gone on to have fantastic ministry now and is one of your missionaries as well. Yeah. And, and Hal Puttick, uh, who was uh, head of your, your missions for a while, was the second person that I led to the Lord um, in my ministry with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ at, at U of S. And Hal and I had a connection because we both played basketball and he invited me to to join his uh, Bedford grads, uh, senior men's team, and uh, and we became uh, good friends. And James and Hal uh, were in my uh, my Bible study as well. But you know, sometimes these days, especially Christians, are quite hesitant to share their faith. Yeah, we're are. not really sharing our faith as much as we used to. And I can't help but think of something that Penn Jillette said. If you're familiar with the illusionist uh, Penn and Teller, uh, Teller's the one that doesn't say anything. And Penn was, was the big guy, usually with the long ponytail. He's cut it off now and lost some weight. But uh, he's, a, he's an atheist. But listen to what he said about evangelism. He uses the word proselytize here, but he's meaning evangelism. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Did you catch that? I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. 
if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people should be going to hell to hell or not uh getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them because this would be socially awkward an atheist you think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself he says how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize that is to not tell them how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Right. Right. We're talking about eternal destiny here. Yeah. So even that atheist gets it. We have to realize this is important. We need to take seriously people's eternal destiny. And who should it be? Everybody. Those closest to you, your family, and then your circle of friends, and then the close friends first, and acquaintances, and then the broader community, and the city, and the province, and the country, and the world. Is your use of money and your time, your resources, does it show that you care about people in all of those categories? As Charles Spurgeon famously said, and this is said in a way that it would make us more uncomfortable today, but he said this in the 19th century. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, he said, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Wow. So, our second application point is take others' eternal destiny seriously <coughs> and invest our money to prove that. Secondly, uh, we need to also be involved in discipleship because right. discipleship is teaching and equipping others who will also spread the good news. So invest your money on training for yourself and for others who are doing it or planning on doing it. And again, I think of uh, James Sukalak and Hal Puttick, Rod Alm, who um, I was able to help learn how to walk in the spirit in my second year on staff and his first year at University of Saskatchewan. And Cyril Anders, another student there. Those four guys were in my discipleship group. And I did what I could during that time to train them. And if we actually had a look at the people that, they have influence for the gospel. Um, my legacy is filled with what they have done because I took some time to disciple them. Who are you discipling? Who are you training and equipping to learn how to share the good news and disciple others? And then the third area is apologetics because uh, today a lot of people are afraid to share their faith. A lot of Christians are afraid to share their faith because they're just afraid they're going to get asked a question right. that they can't answer or they're going to get mocked or made fun of and you know, who wants that. And so I think we need to learn how to make Christianity be seen as true and desirable, true and desirable. First of all, true. Tim Keller has a great quote on this. He says in a post Christendom society, in the marketplace of ideas, you have to explain why Christianity is true or people will just dismiss it. You have to be able to explain why Christianity is true. But it's not just that. We also need to show why Christianity is desirable. Yeah. Truth is the most important thing. But people want, want to know what, uh, what should they believe in terms of what works, what actually helps my life. What actually makes a difference in this life and an afterlife if there is one? And so we need to show that it's desirable. There's a new book out by Paul Gould on cultural apologetics. And he's, this, is what, this is what he says about the desirable portion. We need to show others that Christianity is both true to the way the world is, that is, it's reasonable to believe, and also true to the way the world ought to be. It's desirable 
true. It, it meets our deepest needs. It's met my deepest needs. It can meet your deepest needs too. Gould says, our call is to be curators of the culture in the hope that Christianity will be seen as both plausible and desirable. So plausible and desirable, true and desirable, uh, true and it works. So how are you investing your money? Are you investing your money in apologetics training for yourself so that you can be able to show people that Christianity is actually true and that it's desirable? Are you investing your money on training for other people uh, who maybe are doing that or want to do it? We are in the golden age of apologetics right now, folks. Believe me, when I first started doing apologetics 40 years ago, the world was completely different. There was very little good quality apologetics. There is an enormous amount now, enormous. And uh, I just encourage you to take advantage of the resources that are out there. There are so many things free there online. Uh, there's books, there's uh, apologetics website. I'd recommend the best one being Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. And he has a series of animated videos on his website. And I encourage you to have a look at those. On the average, they're about, they're about five minutes long. There's a really good one that you might want to start with. It's called, How Can Jesus Be the Only Way? Uh, but they're all excellent. So in conclusion, Jesus is teaching us to take seriously the end of life and take seriously who our master is. Serve God, not money. Faithfully and wisely use money as a tool to win friends for eternity. For there are eternal rewards and consequences for how one stewards money. And through it all, be generous, be prudent, responsible, wise, and faithful with your money. Keeping it in its proper place, not as your master, but make it your servant. John Wesley once said concerning money, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Lastly, I want to say to you, dear saints at Ebenezer Baptist, thank you for your decades of generous and faithful investments in the eternity of people. Through myself and Phyllis and through all the other missionaries that you support, I pray that God will continue to bless you so that you can continue to bless the eternal kingdom of God uh, through your prayers and your resources. Welcome to our kitchen table. Uh, we're going to close uh, the service today by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And this is one of the earliest practices of the church. Right from the very beginning, when Jesus inaugurated it in the upper room, the disciples and then the early followers of, followers of Jesus, all the way to the people today, have been remembering the Lord's death. Uh, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remem remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so today we're going to proclaim the Lord's death because he has not come yet. And we celebrate not just our, with our Ebenezer family, but with believers all over the world who take time to remember the Lord's death because it symbolizes for us uh, that we have been cleansed and restored and forgiven. And it also is the hope of the future for us that we will be one day with him again when he returns. And so uh, it says in the scripture in Matthew that while they're eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take eat, this is my body. So let's eat together today. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, he gave it to them and he said, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so let's drink this together today. Let me pray, and I want to just thank the Lord for His 
work on the cross, but I also want to pray for our church family. So would you bow your heads with me? So Father, thank you so much again for your love for us, uh, displayed in so many ways. Father, you displayed your love by sending your son, Jesus, and by uh, turning your, your, your face from him as he became sin for us. Thank you for that great act of love. And Jesus, you show your love for us in many ways. You showed it as you walked on the earth, and you showed it as you hung on the cross. And you became sin for us that we might have life in, in, in God through you. And so thank you for that. And so we, we want to live this life to the fullest right now. And God, your word says that we should not be anxious about anything, but with everything, with prayer requests, make our requests known to you, and that the peace of God would rule in our hearts and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so I know that in this season, especially as our schools start up again, there are many concerns and there's many worries and, and there's probably many parents and kids who are anxious and teachers who are anxious. And so I pray especially for the school startups in every level, whether it's university or college or Bible college or high school or elementary school, that you, God, would put your hand of protection over this nation and over our province. And I pray that you would, that you would allow us to be able to move uh, without fear into, uh, into the interactions that we need to have that even sustain and, and help our life. And so God, protect the teachers uh, as, they, as they teach. Give them wisdom to know what to do and when to do it. I pray that you would help the students to not uh, come with fear, but they would come with expectation. And God, by your grace and mercy, would you protect this province and would you protect this city. And so we just ask that you continue to restore us, but also not just from the, the virus, but you would restore us in our deep in our person, that we might be people that walk with you and honor you. And God, that you might help us to have a ministry to those around us and that we would bear much fruit. And so we commit ourselves to you and we say that we love you because you first loved us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.